This is Adjuster TV, Adjusters First. So we have a viewer question here from Sean. He says, and it was by viewer question, I mean, it was on, on our Facebook group. Hey everyone, so I have my license, but I honestly have no idea what to do with it. I had a friend who does this for a living and they got me interested, but I'm not sure what to do beyond getting the license. I was hoping someone might be able to help guide me in the right direction with this. Well, that's what we're here for. Uh, welcome to Adjuster TV. My name is Matt. This is Andy. And we are trying to use our experience in the claims industry to help people understand what claims is all about, what, what being an independent adjuster or claims property claims adjuster is, um, if it's right for you or not, right? That's a big part of this is to, is to you know, help people decide if they if this is the kind of work that they want to do, it's the kind of work that they're interested in, if it's going to line up with what they want to do with their lives. Um, and then once if you decide that you're all in, then to help you to crush it as an adjuster. It's a pretty good gig, right? You don't need a college education to do it. Um, I really, not even at the carrier level, I don't think, anymore. Um, so to answer this question, you got your license, what do you do next, right? Well, getting your license is a really, really big first step. It's not easy to do, right? So you have, and if, if you have, uh, use like Adjuster Pro um, to do like pre-licensing and to get that kind of like training, they'll teach you everything that you need to know about how to pass the, to pass your state license as an adjuster. Um, but it's, it's a, there's a lot of information there and the tests can cover Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of insurance stuff, right? I think it's, you know, we talk about, you know, it shouldn't really, at this point, it really shouldn't be a question as to whether or not you should get your license. It's it's your entree into the industry, right? It shows you've got a little bit of skin in the game. It's just, you're, you're, you're serious about it. And it gives you kind of a baseline, um, especially if you take pre-licensing or pre-exam stuff from Adjuster Pro, which you can get access to at adjustertv.com slash licensing. Um, because we partner with those guys. Um, it gives you kind of a foundational understanding of like insurance concepts, right? The, you start getting introduced to the lingo, um, how policies work. Generally speaking, most state exams that I know of cover like all kinds of insurance claims, policy stuff, not just property claims. You're going to cover a lot, of, a lot of auto. You'll cover like marine. You'll cover all this stuff. Um because they want you to not necessarily be an expert, but to have, you know, to pass a test that you at least understand what, what insurance is all about, which is what your license is for. But the question isn't why should you get a license or what is it? It's what do I do after I got it? Right. So what should they do, Andy? I'd say run for the hills. Run for the I'm hills. Kidding. Okay. Kidding. All right. We'll see you guys later. Turn off. The so that's a good question. Um, it's a good starting point because you have to have a license in some states to even handle claims there. So we take Florida for example. Let's say you're the most experienced adjuster in the U.S. and you have a hurricane that hits Florida, but you don't have a Florida license. Well, you can apply for a emergency license, obviously, but you have to have that license to let you into that state and handle those claims. So you got your license, so that's good. You're going to have to get that taken care of. Um, I would recommend, it doesn't say what license you got, but whatever license you got, let's say it's a state that requires testing to get the license, then you can use that license for 
getting your other licenses because they have reciprocal agreements um, with other states. And so you can get those other licenses. So the first thing I would do is say, get Texas, Florida, all the Gulf, uh, Gulf, Gulf state licenses. And if you look at some of the statistics as far as hailstorms, Minnesota, I'm not sure if Minnesota is licensed. It is. Okay. The so big one. The big one. Okay. Yeah. I would look for every, um, state that you may want to work in where they're having a lot of frequency of hailstorms or windstorms, get those licenses, get the states that um, hurricanes commonly hit. Then from there, are you ready for a deployment? That's the next question. And the answer to that question is no, you're not ready for a deployment <laughs> just yet. Uh, that six figure income is out there, but your couple of things you need to do first. One, if this is your career, you need to invest in yourself and your success by getting some training because as a new adjuster, you don't have the luxury of experience. And so you can't just knock on an IA's door or an IA firm's door and say, let me in. They're going to say, well, you have some licenses, but you don't have any experience. So we don't want to turn you loose on a storm. So you got to get training. Uh, I feel like adjuster TV has some really good training. I feel like, uh, the adjust the adjuster training that we offer, we have uh, your best interest in mind because we want you to succeed. But regardless where you go, if you go to Voss, if you go to MoCat, get some training because the worst thing you want to do is get out there with your adjuster license, get on your first storm. Then your question is, okay, I just got deployed. Now what do I do? That's going to be the next question. <laughs> you don't want that to be the next question. So yeah, so so step one, get more licenses. Step two, get get some training, right? So again, you can't just you know you can't just show up and you get paid. You have to show up trained in this particular in this particular industry, at least as an independent adjuster, because a lot of times they're just not going to have the resources to train you. There's no not really any on the job training. There are absolutely exceptions to that rule, but I don't I think that they're more rare than they are common. Um, so, and one of the key things that you need to learn, one of the foundational skills is that you need to, you know, know how to document the loss and to create an estimate. And the only way that you can do that is through learning the estimating software. Um, right now, today, still the most popular top dog software is Xactimate. Um, there's other software out there. There's Symbility, which is, you know, is, is, uh, used by a couple of the big carriers, but still by and large, for the most part, most people are using Xactimate. I think all contractors are using Xactimate. Um, it's, it's, it's a kind of the industry standard and has been for a long time. And we talk about training, you know, it's, it's not so much what looks good on a resume which is a benefit to to having training and getting certifications, which is a certification. All it is is a, a, a the proof of proficiency in that particular skill that you took the training on. So if you take training and you don't, there's no test or anything that, that shows, that proves that you, you got the information in your head, that that training is not as, in my opinion, is not as valuable as one that has a certification attached to it. But that looks good on a resume, but more importantly, 
it helps you when you get on that first storm at first deployment and you're you walk in with your you know your little computer bag over your shoulder and you're like now what do i do right the training and the certifications help you to to swim when everybody else around you is sinking and they're getting their the sharks are getting them right so it's it's almost like you know why should you exercise well, it's for for your health, right? It mean, means that you'll live longer, you'll feel feel better the, as you know as the older you get. And one of the side effects is you're gonna you could get six pack abs, right? You'll look better, right? But that's just that's superficial. The the most important reason why you want to get these trainings and get these certifications is um, because it's gonna help you survive and help you do the job better, which will build a, a much much stronger foundation. Um, for your career, right? So going forward, that you're you didn't just like you know by the the skin of your teeth barely make it through your first storm, and you know you got a lot of work to do. You'll learn what you didn't where the holes were in whatever kind of preparation you had for that. It's a difference between that and finishing strong and being getting noticed by your manager, your manager's managers, the carriers. The carriers are looking. They're watching the IAs because they want to find those those diamonds in the rough, those people that um, it's clicks with, and they seem to do a really good job, and they take care of the homeowner. They have a really, you know, they provide a really good customer experience for the policyholder. Those things are the things that are going to help to build that foundation because they're going to want to keep you busy. You're going to pick you if you're that second person first before they'll they'll hold their nose and pick the the first person who kind of just barely scri- scratched through but they'll be trying to find ways to keep you busy so that they can, when, when things happen, they've got you as a resource. Cause that's, that's, that's what they're looking for. And we talk about this constantly, I feel like. Um, and you know, so what certifications should you get? Right. I think, uh, probably the biggest one to start is to get, uh, at least I, you know, I, this, I think opinions vary about this. I think that Xactimate level one certification is still a pretty solid certification. It gives you everything that you need to know about how to find things in Xactimate, which is for for most adjusters, well, really we're all adjusters. Anybody working in the software is going to spend most of their time trying to find things, right? Searching for individual fence slats or where's paint, where's that? How do I, you know, it's it's that's that's where the the vast majority of your time is spent. Level one covers that. Level one covers using sketch to build rooms and roofs. It covers uh, writing estimates based on that information. Um, it gives you a full tour of the of the software. How do you where's the insured's name go? Where's the deductible go? All that stuff, right? It's covered in level one. So if you if you don't have a whole, if you got a day and you need to learn Xactimate, you can get a level one certification or, or get the cert the. There's a difference between the, the the prep and the certification. Again, the prep is the training. The certification is to prove that you, you retained what you were just taught, right? Level two, I what would you say? The, the level of difficulty above a level one is four times? Four times, times? but I just want to add something on level one. A lot of people may say, level one, that's that's kind of lame, just getting that. I might as well go for level two. But if you're going to get one certification, start with level one, because last year I was doing some onboarding for Hurricane Ian. We have a group of adjusters in class, and I say, okay, now we're going to add some coverages or the coverage lines. 85% of the class didn't know how to add a coverage. 
And and now if you're out there and you say, hey, I was one of those people, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> but level one would show you how to add coverage lines to your claim. And so that's the importance of level one. Now, level two, you get a more, little more complicated and sketching and so forth. But at least start with level one. Yeah, you could actually look at it, at it this way. Level one teaches you how to use the software, right? Level two teaches you how to use the software in the context of a more complex claim, right? Level three is mastery. You're supposed to be like a subject matter expert if you can nail level three, which very few people do. Um, and it is it is multiples times more challenging than even level two. But if you could only pick one, um, you can swing for the fences a little bit and try to go for a level two, but there, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting a level one. And another important thing about level one or any, really any of the levels is that once you take that exam, you'll understand how they test for the level, right? So you'll, you'll, if you take level one, it's going to be probably arguably easier um, or not super duper hard. We'll put it that way. And, but you'll see all the tests are the same as far as like how they administer the test. You'll see how that's done and you'll see what kind of questions that they ask, you know, based on the, the diagrams that you draw and the estimates that you write. And then that way, when you go to take level two, you'll have a much better, you'll be more prepared to take the test because you've already taken the, the test in level one. I think that's helpful. Um, you know, it could be argued that it's a, you know, incremental, you know, opportunity for, you know, quality or whatever, but that's could be a benefit, right? And and you, you want to try to get these done as quickly as possible. You've got a year to take them. Um, but when you get that level one certification, I think that even if you did, you never put it on a resume or level two, it's still having that proficiency test is proof to yourself that you, you know, you're testing yourself on, on whether or not you got what you were just taught. Right. So I think there's a lot of value in that. Looks good on a resume, right? It's industry wide, industry accepted. It's, uh, um, and it, it provides you with the foundation of skills that is going to save you time. And when you save time, you're going to be able to close more claims because you're not going to be spending 90 minutes trying to find the one little t tiny thing in, in Xactimate. Where do I put ITEL pricing in? If you don't know, if you haven't been shown it, you'll never find it. Do you, there's, I could promise you. 100% you won't find out where you will never figure out how to put ITEL pricing for carpet or sing, shingles or siding into Xactimate if you haven't been shown it. Nope, 100%. Because you think, you're like, oh, I'll just put it in the quick. Nope, that's not it. It's someplace else. Anyway, um, so I would say, <clears throat> you know, when you've got your certifications, um, particular Xactimate user certification level they have one two three right level being level one being basic level two being you know what we you could call it advanced because it kind of is those the, the diagrams and estimates that you write in there are, are fairly complex and then expert level which is your you know level three um go for level three if you want i don't think anybody at all requires it um you know the certifications look good on a resume they help you out. They help you be more efficient and effective. They show that you've got a little bit of skin in the game because you're taking, you know, a, a critical piece of training, a critical skill that you got to know, and you're taking it into your own hands to go out and get that training, take the test, and you didn't have to be told to do it or asked to do it or whatever. You went and got it because you know it's going to improve you. And um, you had mentioned that some some carriers require level two, right? 
Yeah. So I used to, uh, recently, up until recently, I worked for an IA firm. And uh, so I got to kind of peek behind the curtains, if you will, on how they do their deployments. And so one of the things that they do, and you can imagine if you have a roster of 20,000 adjusters and you're trying to fill 200 spots for a particular carrier, there is no a team that's physically going to lay eyes upon each adjuster. So what they do is they use filters. And so they're probably going to filter everybody that has level two certification. And so if you don't have a level one or two certification, you're probably never even going to make it uh, to the next step because that computer system they have filters filters it out. And so maybe they're looking for level two uh, certifications in the state of Florida that have a Florida license. And so that's why these certifications and these licenses are so important. If you're level three certified or heck, if you're a, a, an Xactimate certified trainer and you're trying to get a deployment for Florida, but you don't have a Florida license, then you're going to get filtered out. So that's that's kind of how those things work. And so the you want to boost your resume, sure. But uh, sometimes uh, firms use filters to sort people out because there's no way that they can just go through the whole entire roster. So that's a good way to set yourself apart from anybody else sitting out there on a roster somewhere. Yeah. So I, I like to say that that licenses are keys to opportunity, right? So if you if you live in Colorado and you have you know, you don't even want to go to pick a state. Minnesota right? You just, you're like, I'm just going to work at home. You know, I don't need to get any licenses because Colorado doesn't have a license. They don't require adjusters to have licenses. Well, what if a desk, a remote desk opportunity pops up in that, that has, you know, you handling your, the, the remote person handling claims from Minnesota anywhere in the world, right? If you don't have a Minnesota license, you're not even going to show up as available to, to work that remote event, right? You could stay, you could have stayed home and, you know, done stuff on the computer for several hours a day every day and made money but you don't have a minnesota license so you can't you won't even show up in the in the filtered list right same thing goes for certifications as well um speaking of certifications andy um you mentioned a little bit ago that you have your hague certified inspector right yes i do um probably hands down it was probably the most uh worthwhile course I spent money on. I think I paid around $900 for the course and it was the Hague uh, residential roof uh, certification. So more than just the HCI. Yeah. They have a desk, uh, like a, almost like a desk reviewer uh, program, but this was the certified uh, roofs uh, for residential for wind and hail. If you only have a limited amount of money to spend on some training or certifications and you're going to work wind and hell. I cannot recommend this enough. What it's going to teach you is a lot of things that's going to help you when you're standing on a roof with a, how should I put this? An overzealous roofing salesperson. Um, it will give you the actual knowledge that you need to speak intelligently with that person. So let me give you an example. Like before this training, I saw the wind reports on, because uh, a lot of carriers use AccuWeather or NOLA. They use these wind reports to see what the wind was in a particular area. Well, I didn't know that these wind reports are measured at 33 feet high in open territory, usually at a at an airport. And so if you have a, a wind event and the 
wind report was 85 miles an hour, but maybe you're in an older neighborhood with lots of structures and lots of homes. Big well, tall trees. Big tall trees. It's not measured at 33 feet, and you've got a lot of structures in place that's going to affect how the wind acts upon that house. What kind of damage would you expect on the windward side of the house versus the leeward side of the house? It goes into on shingles. What is the granules? Now, I know a lot of roofing contractors may not agree with this, but the, the roofing gran- the granules on a shingle really are not the watershedding component of that shingle. It serves three purposes. It adds weight, color, and sunblock for that shingle mat. You're going to learn all of that in that Hague certified training. Probably the best training dollars I ever spent, so I would highly recommend that. Yeah, and so you can get that from HagueEducation.com. We have a partnership with them. This, By the way, this is an advertisement, just so you know. Um, Hague Education has um, a huge resource of trainings, just like the Hague Certified Inspector, the Hague Certified Reviewer Program, um, books. You know, they have the physical books, which I have in a box over here. Um, still, I, I mean, they're, they're, they're just for your own edification and your own learning. You can go flip through them or, you know, because they're like a heavier duty, like cardboard, each page, they're really, really durable. So you could throw them in, in the bin in the back of your truck and break them out when there's a big question mark as to whether or not there's damage or not. You know, the other thing about the, these certifications in particular, the damage one is that it's going to save you time, right? So you're not standing up on the roof, scratching your head about whether or not that's a hail hit or not. You've seen it in the training. You've gotten certified to to be able to ID damage. You're like, that is, that is, that isn't, that isn't, that is, that is, and boom, you're off the roof, right? So you're not going to be spending a bunch of extra time um, at the house. You'll be much more effective, much faster. Um, They've got continuing education. Uh, They have the tools. They've got the shingle gauges and everything. Um, Head on over to hagueducation.com, and you can get a 15% discount currently. on pretty much everything over at hagueeducation.com using code ADJUSTERTV at checkout. So again, hagueeducation.com, ADJUSTERTV is your coupon code for 15% off, which is significant, um, and uh, go check them out. So again, Hague is a, is a, a valued partner of ADJUSTERTV, and uh, we really like talking to those guys at conferences and going and shooting videos. In fact, we, we went uh, a year or two ago and shot a, a big video um, of their ice, the ice ball guns and their, all their testing stuff. So you should check that out. So um, what is the difference between daily and cat work? Andy? Yeah, so daily work, um, if you're as a new adjuster and you're wanting to pick one or the other, there's a lot of travel involved in cat, but the claims are easier from the standpoint is – uh, from the standpoint that they're cookie cutter. So if you have hailstorm, if that's the storm you're working, then almost every claim that you have is going to have almost the same elements, the same damage. You may have some exterior damage, maybe a room or two that has some water damage to the ceiling. And that's pretty much the type of claim you're going to see that uh, entire deployment. Now, if you get a wildfire deployment, most of the claims or all the claims you're going to see have a wildfire component. Um, it's not that way on daily claims. Daily claims is non-cat related, so it's just stuff that happens to homeowners every day. You have to have more experience because you're going to get everything thrown at you from 
the least severe to the highest severity of claims, and the variety is so much different. So you may have a, a super complex water claim, you may have a total burn, you may have a trip and fall, and you've got to investigate the liability part of that. You may have a tree on a fence. You're just going to get anything. And so uh, the daily claims, I think the money uh, for daily claims, as far as deployments, the money is steadier because you're getting a, a steady dose of claims. And so you're going to be on site a lot longer. Cat claims is you make a bunch of money up front, but then you move on. So there's kind of some trade-offs both ways. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are, there are opportunities for new adjusters to do daily claims, but they're not nearly as common. Um, I think that, uh, you know, that there, I think there are, are, are considerably more exceptions to that statement though, than there are for other things where, that, where I say something's very rare. I, I think that there are some daily opportunities out there, um, but you really have to dig for them and you have to make yourself available and in some cases, it may be that you're the only person available, um, but as your very first foray into working claims, um, I think for for your setting yourself up for success, I would try to shoot for um, cat before I would do daily because again, like you know, Andy just said, the the level of complexity of these claims is significantly greater. Um, on average than on for cat claims. Catastrophe claims, again, re- really, really repetitive. You're going to be in a lot of the same neighborhoods with a lot of the same cookie cutter house doing the same basic claim on everybody's house, right? So you, you start to get kind of a muscle memory and, and you, you're doing reps of the same exercise. With, with the daily stuff, you know, you could be at one house for 20 minutes and then at the next one for four hours um, because there's the, the, the level of severity is... It's whatever happens, right? It's not a storm came through and did X amount of damage. It's life is happening and there's severe damage and there's minimal damage and everything in between for all different kinds of causes of loss. You really, really have to get into the the policy and know the policy in order to be, to, to, to do a good job on daily claims. In a lot of cases, you, you might get condo claim, you know, a landlord protection policy claim, a, a BOP claim, a farm and ranch claim, and then like a DP one or something, and then like a bunch of HO3s. You could get all those, and they all the coverages are treated differently on all, every single one of those for this exact same, you know, cause of loss. And in some cases, the cause of loss might not be covered on some of those where it is on others. Um, so you have to be, you know, very detail oriented. And to do daily claims, to be good at it and to start, even if you have an opportunity to do it, I probably would, you know, you could wreck if you, if you, if you, if you, you, there's, there's two schools, there's two ways you could go with it. Certainly you could be like, you know what, I'm jumping in feet first or head first. And if there's no water in the bottom of the pool, then maybe I can tuck and roll. Right. Um, You can try to do that. Or you could play it a little bit safer and say, well, you know, I'm going to play the long game. And for the the security of this career going forward, maybe I'll I'll try to work up to doing daily. Um, I think that the, the vast majority of people that make a career out of claims um, will end up as daily adjusters, certainly, because they work from home, they sleep in their own bed, and they just handle stuff that's around them, right? You can um, do deploy daily or proximity kind of style claims where 
say you live in Dallas and then there's, you know, they just, so a company is short of people in New Mexico. And then they just send you, you know, you can go work daily claims in New Mexico. It's any kind of claim in New Mexico. You're living in a hotel, you're doing everything that you would do like a cat adjuster. You just have a lower volume and daily claims, right? So instead of having just like a bunch of, a whole bunch of hail claims, you'll just get a steady diet for as long as you can handle it or until they, they find, you know, the carrier hire somebody to fill that role. Um, it's, that's kind of the, the way a lot of those daily situations go. Um, there's a lot of parts of the country where there's a need for adjusters to do daily claims, the Northwest, the Northeast. Um, I think in the Southwest, the more rural areas, a lot of windshield time, but there's not that as many people working th those areas, you know, Dallas, uh, you know, Atlanta, Miami, probably not going to be a great place to try to build a daily, um, a daily business as we call it. Um, not to say that you can't, but you've got a lot of competition, especially in a place like Dallas, Fort Worth, where there's, you know, I think in one year, a few years ago, they had issued like 17,000 Texas licenses. That's a lot. Um, that's a lot of competition. Um, but, um, do you know what the difference, Andy, between errors and emissions and general liability insurance is? I don't. I, if I was a independent adjuster and I overpaid a claim or paid a claim that wasn't covered and the carrier came back and says, you owe that money back because you screwed up, would that type insurance cover me? It could, yeah. So that that would be they would they would say you were negligent somehow. So that would be the need for uh, like E and O insurance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we talk about e errors and emissions insurance E and O, and it is something that you you know if you're a new adjuster, you will probably be included on a blanket policy through your IA firm, and they may charge you for it. Every claim they may take five bucks out of your pay to pay for that E and O policy, um, but as the longer you do this and if you decide, hey, I'm all in on claims, you're going to save money and get much better coverage by buying your own E&O insurance. So E&O covers you for somebody saying that you were negligent somehow in the claims process and in handling of the of the claim, whether it's the carrier or whether it's the homeowner who says that you didn't pay them everything that they thought they should get. Whether it's true or not, um, E&O insurance will uh, come into play. General liability insurance is the your ladder falls over and hits the insured in the head or lands on the their brand new Porsche, you know, Pan America, um, and you get on the hook for a twenty seven thousand dollar bill for whatever, right? General liability GL insurance covers that sort of thing. Um, so you kind of need to have both of those as an adjuster if you're out in the field and, and going to a bunch of different people's houses every single day. Uh, those are pretty critical, especially if you're already like in this career and you're wanting to look for a way to sort of protect yourself. I think it's better than the LLC, but that's, you know, my opinion. Um, and there are certainly generic E&O insurance coverages that you can get through a broker or through Hiscox or, you know, companies like that. But those are generally speaking going to be again, like I said, generic in that they're they're kind of covering every kind of like sort of independent freelancer person or small small business. Um, Kaplik, which I talk about on every single video that we do, 
is you know one of our one of our partners and they uh, provide E and O and general liability insurance for the insurance industry, in particular the independent claims industry. Um, that's all that they do. If you get a letter from an attorney saying, "Hey, you messed up on this claim and you're you're getting called into court for whatever," you pick up the phone and you call Kaplik and you say, "Hey, I got this letter from the attorney, and you know." what do I do? And they'll say, fax it over or email it over or bring it over or mail it over or whatever. And, uh, we'll take it from there. Right. So they're going to try to keep you out of court to, to begin with, but they will be with you through the whole process. And that's, you know, it's not super common to, to I think, to end up in court as an adjuster, but it absolutely happens to a lot of people. Um, you really need to have some professional legal, you know, f- help, Right. And, and Kaplik is, is a company that can kind of help with that stuff. Um, and they, like I said, they only serve the insurance industry, um, which makes them specialists for the kind of situations that you're most likely to encounter where a liability or a negligence claim pops up on you. Right. Check them out. CPLIC.net slash adjuster TV. There's a little guide uh, for insurance adjusters for what kind of insurance, you know, like what kind of auto insurance did you get as a field adjuster? That stuff's in, in that in that little guide. So check them out at cplic.net slash adjuster TV. All right. This is one that I I like this question um because it's it's so common. It's so typical. It's such a like a social media, it's like a Facebook question. It's, it is probably right behind I got my just got my license. Now what do I do? And that is um should you do ride-alongs, like a ride-along, does that count as training or should you go get formal training or both? Like, what should you do? And I think to start, like, we should define terms here really quick and just say that what a ride-along really is, is a job shadow, right? It's it's your, you know, if you picture, you know, we use the example of a, um, fishing, right? You're looking for, you want to learn how to fish. You can go like, go to the, the pond, right? And find somebody that's, that's fishing and, and we'll watch them, right? And, and maybe have them show you how to do stuff. They're probably going to be pretty intent on fishing and not really, you know, they may say, well, you can watch me all you want to, but I'm not going to stop fishing to show you how to fish. I think ride-alongs, unless you find somebody who's not interested in making money on the storm that they're on or the, the claims assignment, and they're only interested in like showing you everything that they know, I think a ride-along is a job shadow. That's my statement about it. What do you think, Andy? I think a ride-along is what you do in an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of ride-alongs, so let me give you an example. So um, I want to learn how to wire a three-way switch. And so this electrician brings me out there. I'm sitting there with my bag of chips. I'm sitting there munching on chips while he's changing a three-way switch. And I walk away from there like, cool, I know how to wire a three-way, a, a three-way switch. Do you really? <laughs> yeah. No, you don't because you just r- rode along and just watched him do it or watched her do it. Until you actually get out there and are forced to wire a three-way switch with somebody standing there training you, showing you how to do it, you don't really know how to do it. So ride-alongs are good. I think ride-alongs do serve a purpose as to 
if you want to do this as a career. Yeah. If you're thinking, yeah. maybe I should do this, maybe I shouldn't, what's the job about? Then go do a ride-along. Um, and then if you ride along with somebody, um, you're not impeding their production. You're just there kind of just observing what they do. That's a ride-along, so there's some benefit there. But if you're wanting to do a ride-along to learn anything, you're probably not going to no. find that very beneficial because the learning is in the doing. Yeah, and the second thing, the second major point of this is I, I see this post every now and then. Well, hey, you know, let me come ride along with you and I'll like write your estimates mm-hmm. for you. Right. Don't. There's no. Because this person has a way that they write their claims start to finish and it'll take them way more time to show you how to do that the way they want you to do it. And and if they, if for some reason they just like throw your, their scope sheet at you and say, yeah, go ahead and do it. You're not going to do it right. And so, and their management and the file review and QA are going to notice. I did this on an early storm. I had some friends and I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll scope and you write and whatever. And we'll like break it up. And then and it's, it was a disaster. And I got called into the office. This was back when we had offices and they were like, what's going on with your files? It seems like the quality changed, right? They, they may have said it dropped at that point. Not to say that other, other adjuster wasn't very good. Um, but it was just not the, they, they weren't doing it the way I did it. Right. So, so to, all that to say that it's not you're not going to be able to help them, right? Because they're going to spend more time trying to show you how to, to do the claim the way they want they they do it, than you know they could just do it themselves. So that's not really it's not really helping them. I know that you want to help, but I think I would flip this around and say that the, that the best way to do a ride along is again to look at it as an opportunity early before maybe even before you get your license um, as a job shadow to say. I'm going to go ride along for three or four days, two days, maybe, right? With adjust, an adjuster who's working, all I'm going to do is carry their ladder and buy them lunch, buy them steak dinners for a couple of nights. And over dinner, pick their brains about things. Maybe take notes as we go, as, as you go through the day and it's, you know, for questions that you can ask later. Because the person is going to be, unless you're you know, between, driving between losses, maybe you ask questions there, right? But look at it as an opportunity to see what it's like to be an adjuster, right? And biggest mistake that I see when people, uh, when I see people like announcing that they want to do a ride along is they're like, hey, anybody in the, pick a town, right? Asheville, North Carolina, South Carolina, wherever Asheville is, in the Asheville area, um, I would love to do a ride along with you. Is there even anybody working there right now? Maybe a, a couple of daily adjusters, but is there a cat? The way to do it is to to get the full experience of being an independent adjuster is when you see a big storm go off and watch Google um, yesterday's storm reports and go to the the NOAA site and look at the things. And then when you see like that there's like a bunch of windstorm and tornadoes and hail or whatever, or you see something announced on Facebook, um, people are working or whatever, reach out to those people and say, hey, no matter where in the country they are, if you live in, in Key West and you see somebody who's, who's working a storm in Billings, Montana, I'm reaching out to that person. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all the way. I'm all in on it. I'm going to reach out to that person and say, hey, listen, I want to. can I job shadow you for two days or three days? I'll pay for your food. I'll carry your ladder. I'll, I'll help you in whatever, you, way you can, whatever way you need. And I'll keep my mouth shut and not 
ask you a bazillion questions as you're working. I'm not going to slow you down. I'm not asking you to train me. All I want to do is see if I want to do this or not. That's it. I'll pay all my own expenses, but I'll buy food for you for three days, right? And then they say, oh, sure, why not? Jump on, come on for the ride, right? Then you're going to jump in your car and you're going to make sure you get some khakis and a couple golf shirts and some roof climbing shoes. And you're going to drive your little self all the way to Billings, Montana, going to get a hotel like we do. That's what's uh, part of our thing. And you're going to make sure that you hook up with that person, meet either meet them at the houses or probably I would get in the car with them, right? Do not make them late, right? If they say, meet me in the parking lot at Walmart at 8.30 a.m., I'm going to be there at 7.45, right? Just in case. Um, and then quiet as a mouse while the person's working, just watch what they do. Watch how they interact with the homeowner and with contractors and everything else and just just watch you're shadowing so be a, shadows are quiet they don't say anything so be a shadow right that would be for me if i'm gonna if you're gonna ask matt how to do a ride along i'm gonna say do it as a job shadow and spend some of your money and on a hotel and some gas to get to wherever go anywhere you're gonna have much much greater opportunity to do a job shadow um if you if you say all right well i live in key west I'll go to Myrtle Beach. I'll go to Houston. I'll go to Kansas City. I'll go to Minneapolis. I'll go to wherever, right? Get in the car and go. That's what we do, right? As independent, especially doing catastrophe work, we're in the car and we travel all over the country. I've driven across this country. I don't. I couldn't tell you how many times. I've almost six hundred thousand miles on my Forerunner, and it's all almost all of its highway miles. Um, so, versus formal, just so. Long story short, all that to say. So ride along is not training, okay? It's job shadow is not training. This is only to get a little taste of the life and the and the you know what the career is all about. You know that person that you go on that ride along with, you're picking them basically. You're you're throwing a dart at a board, right? You don't know if that person really knows what they're doing or not. You're you're you know you're you're more interested in seeing the lifestyle, seeing what what his this person's day looks like because it's you know there's. The contacts, the inspections, the writing, the estimate, and then settling up with the homeowner, right? Everybody has to do that. Some people do it better or worse than others, but you want to see that process. You want to see kind of like get up on a roof and, and see what that person's looking at. How are they interacting with, with you know, the homeowner and everybody else? Um, and then decide, I really want to do that for a living, or that's the worst thing ever. Why in the world would somebody be so crazy as to want to do that? Which, hey, it's perfectly reasonable right? And if that's you, if you're like, eh, I don't think this is for me, then you've, you've saved yourself probably tens of thousands of dollars, uh, weeks, months of time, years maybe, um, of trying to figure it out when you could, you, you made the decision and you decided to go that way instead of going our way, which is wonderful because we want you to be happy. And if you're not going to be happy with us, you're not going to, you're not going to be very good for our industry, right? So, Decide early, and that's one way to do it on the job training. And then for the formal training piece, all I'll say on that is, is you you have to show up trained, period. There's there's no there's no on the job. You can't count on on the job training. You know, you can't if you if you show up with an with an attitude that you you know you should be just appear at on the the storm site and immediately start making six figures. Um, you're going to be very disappointed and you're going to create a lot of work for other people. 
show up ready to work, ready to know how to ready knowing how to do the work and um in a way that's not going to drain resources from the carrier and the IA firm and other adjusters to try to like help you figure out which where the on button on your laptop is. Okay, show up trained. Yeah, for sure cuz I I mean, you can tag along with a couple of people just to see if you want to do this as a career, and you'd probably be doing yourself a service to actually do that if you're not sure. Before you buy equipment and licenses, make sure you want to do this job. Uh, make sure you can do this job. If, and maybe you do a field uh, ride along and you think, gosh, I don't know if I can climb roofs or I want to climb roofs. Maybe I should just uh, focus more on desk adjusting. A ride along is beneficial, but it's not training. Yeah. And, you know, you might see something that nobody mentions on social media. We don't mention maybe because, you know, but but it's a deal breaker for you. And you're just like, there's no way I could do this. Could happen, right? But you won't know. And you, I'd really, really rather have you know it in like a low stress. I'm just like standing there just watching a guy do a thing than having 70 claims dropped in your lap. And then you're figuring out that this was a major mistake. Um, so speaking of deployments... So you've been called on a deployment. What should you expect? Maybe let's talk about it from like the the carrier side of things a little bit more. Like what is it what is the ramp up to like the I getting a call? What happens before that, like on the carrier side? Like let's say a big hurricane's coming. What what does it look like on that? Because you you know, yeah. carrier guy. So what they do, um, a couple of things they do is like if a hurricane is approaching land, and this probably doesn't have thing Thing to do with uh, being deployed, but what they do is they try to do fly flyovers of the area that they think they're going to hit um, to do before uh, aerial photos, and then uh, once the hurricane hits, they do another flyover that shows the damage uh, where it was, and so they try to get that's something they do before uh, adjusters get on the ground because later you can use those before and after photos. Maybe you can total the roof out and get some money in policyholders' hands quicker. The other thing they do, kind of in the same um, kind of the same situation is they look and see what policies they have in force and where those policies are at. And then they try to predict where that storm's going to hit, what uh, category is it going to hit at. Then they think, okay, they forecast we're going to have 50,000 claims in Fort Myers Beach. So we're going to need uh, probably 1,100 adjusters. Okay, on our CAT team staffers, we've got 55 adjusters that we can deploy and get them in place. Now, gosh, we're going to need another 600 adjusters. So they start uh, putting people on notice, the IA firms, and say, how many people can you give us? We need this many. Sometimes the IA firms, depending on how big they are, maybe they can fill all of those. And so they, they get a, uh, not really a promise, but they get a an agreement, hey, we can supply you with 125 field adjusters. So they start getting that um, done quick. And then you may get a deployment notice, but it's not really deployment notice. Basically, they're putting you on standby. They're trying to get commitments from everybody to see who's available to travel. And then when the storm actually makes landfall and they kind of get an assessment of the damage, then they start saying, okay, instead of standby, we need you in Fort Myers Beach uh, tomorrow. Now, what's frustrating, because I've worked on the carrier side and the IA side, well, it's a little bit frustrating, and it may be just be due to lack of experience. The question comes up is when I get deployed, 
Um, do I have time to go visit my grandma or do I have time to go do this and that and the other? Can I be there on Wednesday? No, you need to be there when the carrier (laughs) needs you there. That's, that's what's so comical. And it's like, do I get to go home on weekends when I get deployed? No, you don't because you're there to do a job. Um, now go get those other things done before. So we're, uh, we're approaching hurricane season. So I would get those things done that you need done now, like doctor's appointments, um, get your vehicle ready. But those are the things that you need to do before you get deployed. Cause once you get deployed, what should you expect? You should expect kind of controlled chaos because at the beginning of the storm, it's super chaotic. Nobody's going to really have time to help you. You're going to get a bunch of claims thrown at you because they may have 10,000 claims and they may flood the market with adjusters and they're just throwing claims at adjusters. They're not even sure at that point if the adjusters are any good, but they're, and and I've asked this and I've researched it from the carrier perspective. There's what they're thinking is, okay, if a policyholder calls in and finds out my claim hasn't been assigned to anybody and it's just sitting over here in a bucket, is that better or is it better to have it assigned to somebody who can pick up the phone? Even though that somebody may not have zero experience, they're going to give it to a person. And so you, when you get to it in a storm, you should expect a lot of stress, um, a lot of chaos, and don't let that get you frustrated because I, I was the world's worst of getting frustrated because I wanted a this happens, this happens, this happens, and this happens. On uh, cat deployments, basically, you got to expect the unexpected and be flexible and roll with the punches. Um, but you should expect anything when you get deployed. But um, And the other thing, if this is your first deployment, this is your most important deployment. Because if you can make it on this first deployment, that sets you up for success later on down the road. If you wash out or you quit or the carrier kicks you off the storm, that's you can recover from that, but it's difficult. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Your first storm is is really the the trial by fire. It's it doesn't matter what's on your resume, doesn't matter, you know, and nothing else. Only thing that matters is is how well you handle put it all together and handled the unpredictability of a storm deployment, the pressure. Right. Because you can be an exactimate level three or even a trainer or whatever and be a, a absolute, you know, master of the software. But if the pressure knocks you on your rear end and just simply doesn't matter, um, you'll be you'll be out on your ear. Um really, really important point I wanna I wanna kind of hammer home that you just mentioned, and that was <laughs> if today is Thursday. And they want me in Fort Myers Beach by the end of the day on Saturday. Um, and my wife's uh, mom's birthday party is tomorrow afternoon. I'm just going to have to catch the birthday party next year and we'll do fa- all FaceTime or something while I'm on the road. The This is, <laughs> it may seem like a small thing, but the faster you can get on site, the better. I, I can't think of any possible exceptions to that. Some of your phone rings. Uh, hey, bud, listen, we got one, you know, in Omaha, Nebraska. You want to go? Yep. And I'm, 
I'm getting my bag and I'm out the door. I'll drive three hours that afternoon, get a hotel, and then, and then finish my drive in the next day. Whatever, right? The first person that's there, um, I may, you may, you probably, especially on like a hailstorm, you're going to get claims right away. On a hurricane, it may, it's a different story, but you still want to be there first. Um, get your claims. You start inspecting right away. You can kind of get a feel for what's out there. You start getting claims through file review and you're, you've got, you have numbers, you put numbers up on the board before everybody else is. And they give claims, the people who close claims, right? So the sooner you do it, the more, the more claims you're going to close on that particular event. And every time you do, do that on a storm, they'll look at your numbers and be like, man, Matt closed 250 claims on that event. And the next person down closed, closed 130, right? And then the next person down was 90. And the next person down was 56, right? How in the world did Matt do 250? His files look great. You know, nobody's calling and screaming and yelling because he was going too fast or whatever. What did he do? Let's keep him busy, right? That's what I did. That's how I built my career as an independent adjuster and how I stayed busy all the time because I, I, I prioritized being efficient. And one of the big pieces to being efficient was to get there as soon as possible, right? You got your bag sitting by the door. It's in the, it's in the truck already, right? You got it's full of khaki pants and golf shirts and your cougar paws and extra underwear and socks and t-shirts. And, and a little ditty bag with your shampoo and an extra your storm toothbrush, right? Maybe it's got like some camo tape around it or something because that's cool. And then it's all in a bag. It's in the back of the truck. So all you got to do is grab your ladder, throw it on the top and make sure you got your laptop bin and all this stuff. And then you just go, right? Get there as fast as possible. It's absolutely critical. And I would, I would even go so far as to say it, it doesn't matter if it's a hailstorm or if it's a hurricane or a wildfire or whatever. You know, on hurricanes, it may be that it takes a few a few days, two or three, four days, maybe, for claims to start rolling in and to start getting assigned because again, it's it is absolutely controlled chaos. But you get there early, early, early. You're kind of like the person who everybody thinks is busy all the time, and all you really do is like when you don't have anything to do, you pick up the broom and you just start like sweeping, you know, a corner of the room, right? Your face is there. You go through all the orientations. So when claims start getting assigned then you're out the door. You're not like, well, I've got two more days worth of orientation trainings to do before I can go handle these claims. You're done with those, right? Get there as soon as they call, go and be responsive and and uh, don't let voicemail sit in your voicemail inbox for two days. Um, there's a million different little things I could tell you to do, but the the prime the, the the big thing for this deployment piece this this deployment question is to get there as, as absolutely as fast as you can. They may redirect to you, you know. They may that you may drive all the way from Atlanta to Houston, and they say, "Well, actually, you know what? We need you to go to to Hilton Head." Okay, jump back in the car and go. And you've got a buffer of time because you got there early, right? So many different reasons why you should. It's the second they call, I'm I'm jumping in the truck and I'm going. Right. It sounds crazy, but this is what you do. I did for a living for 20 years and that's what I did. I wanted to be there first because I wanted to be, I wanted to have numbers up. I wanted to get calibrated by file review early. And cause I, I don't, I don't work for free. Right. I don't, and it's, I'm not home. I'm not sleeping in my own bed. I don't want to spend any more time in that place that I have to, but I want to make as much money as I can while I'm there. Right. Get there as soon as you can. The other thing that I would add, um, the question was, uh, I got called for deployment. What should I expect? Uh, my question would be, what have you done before you got deployed? Because I was doing some onboarding last year for Hurricane Ian, and a couple of adjusters down there, uh, I found that didn't have a ladder. 
And I said, why didn't you bring a ladder? And they said, well, we thought we'd have time that we would just buy it when we get down here. Whatever, <laughs> whatever you can do, because getting, getting that deployment notice is stressful because you're out shopping with your wife or you're out hanging out with the kids and you're, you're planning a birthday party for little Johnny. And then you get that deployment notice. Everything changes. You, it's really kind of stressful to get that. So the more things that you can get done before you get that call or you get that text, the better you're going to be. And so you've got so much coming at you, like, where am I going to stay? How, when am I going to get there? The route to get there. If it's a hurricane situation, gas and uh, groceries and water is going to be limited. So if you can get your go bag packed, if you can get your tools, your chalk, your ladder, your vehicle where it needs to be. And all you got to do is when you get that deployment notice, grab your stuff, put it in the truck, and then you're, you're on your way. That's some part of the stress that can be taken care of and alleviated before you leave. The last thing you want to do is when you get 50 claims dumped on you, it's like, shoot, I need a ladder. Then you've got to go get a ladder. Well, maybe a thousand other adjusters had the same thought and you go to Home Depot and there are no No ladders. ladders. Yeah. So think about the things you need to do before you get that deployment notice. And get those things done first. And then when you get that deployment notice, then you're focusing on what's coming next. You'll get an orientation, uh, either virtually or physically, and they'll kind of uh, tell you about the storm, kind of what to expect, what areas have been affected, their claim counts, uh, estimating guidelines. What they're not going to provide you is a ladder, your underwear, your socks, your T-shirts. I always had almost like a separate wardrobe, and I kept it packed. In my, I had like four totes that I traveled with, with cookware and so forth. Whenever I got done with the deployment, I came back, washed all my storm clothes, repacked everything. And whenever I got that deployment notice, no big deal, grab my stuff in the van, I'm gone. So do that ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Pet vaccinations. I mean, you name it. That's, that's, that's an early season, like early part of the year, January, February, March, get all that stuff done. And then you're, the decks are clear and you're ready to go into action. Um, so what about reinspections and supplements? Did you screw up? Are you, I mean, you got reinspections on your claim. It means that you messed up, right? Possibly. So um, <laughs> it's kind of, I know we're splitting hairs here, but uh, reinspection, depending on what carrier you work for, reinspections and second inspections are not the same thing. So a reinspection is where somebody, manager, trainer, or an actual reinspector goes out to the loss and does their own inspection, their own estimate, and then compares it with yours. Or they look at the photos and they do the same thing. That's a reinspection. The second inspection is you might have screwed something up. Where if somebody goes out there and says, hey, wait a minute, the first inspection was inadequate for whatever reason. Mr. Carrier, I want somebody else to come out here and look at this because this, this, and this was missed, or this was just totally screwed up. That's a second inspection. That's probably where you screwed something up. Or maybe it's a situation where you have an agent who really uh, is going to bat for this insured. Maybe the, the decision isn't going to change, but the carrier saying, well, we don't think anything that was missed, but go out there just as a customer service type thing. And look at the lost. Now, if you get a supplement, there are good supplements and bad supplements. And we've talked about this like last week. There's some things that when you uh, write 
damage on a house. You can't see behind walls. You can't see um, behind two befores and so forth, siding, shingles, whatever. So you may not see some damage back there. Once the contractor gets out there and starts tearing things off, they may discover, gosh, instead of one layer of wall covering, there's actually two layers of drywall and some beadboard behind here. Well, they're going to have to send a supplement for that because they tore off uh, one layer of drywall, which is what you had on your estimate. But behind that layer of drywall, there was another layer. And then there was a layer of beadboard behind there. Those are good supplements. Insurance companies expect that. And so no problem that those are generally expected. Now, let me just back up. Uh, carriers do track supplements, but they track the good and bad ones. What they do is they look at um, called a final estimate difference or actual estimate difference. And so what they do is they do a reinspection of a lot of your files. A reinspector or a trainer writes an estimate. And if you guys are way, way off, that's the kind of supplements or kind of estimate differences they don't like. If it was this open and obvious and you just completely missed it, that's a bad supplement. So a supplement can be good. It can be bad. doesn't necessarily mean that you miss something, but it can be. As a new person, I wouldn't sweat it too much if you get a supplement for something that you absolutely just missed because you're new. You're learning this. This is your craft, and you got to get better at it with time. Now, what I would say is if you're uh, if you on your very first in inspection, if a roof have 10 turtle vents and you only put down five, that's probably okay. But if you're six months into this and you did the same thing, that's a problem. But as long as you're getting better, um, I don't think you should worry about that. The, the, the main thing is, is just getting better day by day. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's a, it's a journey, right? There's no real end de destination. I mean, you will eventually come to a point where you, you may notice this, which I did at one point years in, where I was like, I'm not seeing a whole lot of new things on this particular event. Maybe some new architecture, like if it's a different part of the country where the houses are made a little bit differently or there's a higher end or lower end or whatever it is, or old, like older houses or brand new houses, but you're not, you're not running into new, necessarily new situations or scenarios that you don't know how to handle. Um, and that's, that's an experience thing. And you can only get that from experience. You're not going to get that from training. Um, but you got to, you're not going to get the experience if you don't have the training. Right. So as far as like supplements and things like that, I mean, when you write your estimates, you can reasonably, you're never going to be digging into a wall or tearing things out as an adjuster. You're not touching anything. You're not going to, you, you know, you can peek behind things or whatever and crawl in the attics and with your flashlight, and maybe take your pen and you know gently touch something that looks like it might be rotten, but that's it. You're not. There's no destructive investigations or inspections or whatever. Um, so you you know you'll you, you can only write what you reasonably can assume is there, right? Reasonably assume that there's on the exterior wall that there's some bat insulation between the drywall and the plywood on the outside, right? That's a reasonable, but there may be, like Andy said. There may be drywall, two layers of drywall, and then some beadboard, and then some, you know, corrugated metal, and then some roofing material. I mean, you see all kinds of things. It's just, it's crazy out there. Um, so don't worry too much about supplements and reinspections and things like that. It doesn't matter how advanced you are, how awesome you are, how experienced you are, you're always going to have reinspections, second 
inspections, corrections, and you're going to be writing supplements. Um, I encourage you strongly to volunteer whenever possible, uh, if the opportunity is available to you, to do uh, cleanup on on CAT in particular. And that's where you and maybe one or two other people are left behind, um, managed or not, to clean up basically is to, is to, you're going to be getting reassigned claims reassigned to you from a bunch of different adjusters that were on that particular event and they'll have reinspections, second inspections, supplements, corrections, all kinds of stuff. Right. And you are going to fix those files. Right. And it's, a, it's, it's not, doesn't pay as well as getting all new claims. Um, but if there's nothing else going on, it pays better than way better than zero. And, also, probably more importantly, is that you're going to get an opportunity to see um, how other adjusters, what their work looks like, right? And you'll you'll see that the really really experienced, really top shelf good adjusters, you're still their files are reopening for something, and you get to do that, right? Maybe that's you got to go get an ITEL sample, or you got to meet with a contractor on something else that they missed for whatever reason it is, right? Maybe it was you know, whatever reason, right? And you can look over their whole file in general and be like, man, that, this is really, I like the way this person does this, this, and this. Maybe I'll crib some of that and start using it in my own workflow or my own claims. And then you're going to see a lot more terrible, terrible, terrible work and things that, you know, you'll get a, you'll get a feeling for what terrible work does to the, the people downstream from you who have to clean up your mess, right? How it affects the homeowner, how you have to pull the homeowner away from the edge you know, with using your best customer service, um, because their 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 claim was so mishandled by the first person. It may not, it may be that the per- first person was perfectly nice and everything else. They just had that sort of like you know they weren't very competent, and so they didn't write a very good estimate. And the contractor used that as an opportunity to be like, see, proves it. Insurance companies out to save money on your claim and drag out the process, right? Well, now you got the homeowner off in the weeds, and you got to like you know, gently ease them back by saying, actually, that's not true. We're going to make sure that this is taken care of correctly. I don't know what happened with the previous adjuster. Um, I think there were some adjusters. There was an adjuster that had to leave because they had a family emergency. That may have been them. I don't know anything about it at all. Never throw another adjuster under the bus under any sort, even if they, they threw themselves under the bus and they, they really did screw up. It's nobody's business, right? You're not, you do not trash talk somebody that can't be there to defend themselves. Um, so, Always talk nicely and kindly and generously and respectfully about anybody in the claims process, even if their file looks absolutely terrible and you're like, man, this is a mess. Given the benefit of the doubt, they may have just found out that their wife has terminal cancer. You ha- it's the same thing with the, you know, when I talk about cu- customer service, when a homeowner's gruff with you or, or mad, it gets mad at you for seemingly for no reason. Same thing. Who knows? You don't know unless you know. But even if you do know, None of anybody else's business. Be charitable, be generous, because this is a person, you're the face of the insurance company, right? So were they. So if you if you feel like this is an opportunity to, I feel like I'm going off on a tangent here, but it's, I think it's important. If you feel like this is an opportunity to make your, elevate yourself by tearing somebody else down, like, man, look at the, yeah, they really did a terrible job. I don't, why did they even do that? This is, I mean, I don't know how this person even has a job. You're basically trash talking the insurance company because they hired that person, you know, theoretically, which they did indirectly. Um, so you're not making anybody look good. You're not helping anything. It's not making you look better because I think a lot of people can see through, you know, trash talking somebody else, right? 
So it might feel better. It may make you feel better that you're at least better than that guy, but it's not going to help anything. So always be charitable and generous, respectful of everybody. Um, do your supplements quickly, right? If you, if you, if you're still handling new claims, you're not doing cleanup and you get a correction request or there's a reinspection that pops up and you're like, Reinspe- I know that there's no damage on that one. And the guy wants a second inspection and that roofer, I know those guys, those guys are a bunch of storm chasing, whatever's get that off of your plate as fast as possible to prioritize those things. Don't let them sit there and stew because somebody's already upset. Homer's upset already, or has the potential to be upset. And the longer they sit there, the more that is going to crank up, take care of those things as quickly as possible. Because you, in a lot of cases, you're required to. It may be a requirement that you've got to turn around reinspections and corrections, absolutely, in 24 hours. But they may have like their cycle time for all that stuff, right? Um, so be fast, be kind, be as accurate as you can, and be prepared to be adaptable. Because things will go sideways, and you just have to be ready. Be like Neo in the Matrix, right? Like dodging the bullets. So, and to add to that. And this kind of dovetails, I think, into our, our next, you know, our last little topic here. A lot of insurance companies have, well, every insurance company has to sell insurance, right? So they have some sort of an apparatus for selling insurance. A lot of companies, especially the major ones, have an agents agency network, right, of people that are like agents who only sell American Family or State Farm or whatever, right? And then some other companies, like I think Liberty Mutual, Safeco, they will sell through a broker who will also sell you progressive travelers, whoever else, right? So when you, if you're a homeowner and you're like, I need to go get some homeowner's insurance, they may say, well, we think the best one for you is going to be Liberty or it's going to be travelers or whoever, right? And that's how they sell insurance. But either way, unless it's, you know, like I think Geico or somebody who's doing like, it's all online, the agents are can be your worst enemy or your biggest advocates, right? Especially on cat, especially with the bigger companies that have just a single agent. Like you have, they may have like, you know, a bunch of agents that sell only State Farm or only American Family in a metro area, and you're working in this side of the city. Um, I, I'm going to tell you. And I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna ask you to, to kind of talk about the the liaison part, but I'm gonna tell a, a, an independent adjuster is whether you're required to or not. In some cases, you're required to, you're asked to try to early, early in the storm, pop into those offices and just don't have to make an appointment or anything. Just pop in and just have a couple business cards in your pocket and walk in. The agent may be there, they may not be there. Somebody is gonna be at the desk, the front desk, the receptionist, reception or whatever you want to call them. Maybe sitting there behind the desk, um, introduce yourself, identify yourself as a cat adjuster working this, you know, the big hailstorm we just had last weekend, you know, um, here's my card. If you guys have any questions, if any homeowners, um, have my name on their, their claim and they seem to be having trouble, like getting in touch with me, give them my number, you know, whatever, introduce yourself to the agents. You might, if you talk to the agents, you might spend a few minutes because they may never, never, ever have had a major catastrophe or any kind of catastrophe in their area. And they may have not know, be entirely sure what to expect. You can answer questions, you know, chit chat with those guys and give them your contact information and let them know that you're available. If they do have questions later that you can call them, but you, but more than anything, you've shown your face in there and you've expressed that you want to make sure that you're 
you're getting in touch with and contacting their policyholders as quickly as possible. And you, your, your objective is to get them taken care of as fast as possible and get them, if they need a new roof, we'll pay for it. No problem. If, if not, we'll let them know the condition of the roof, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then you're out the door. When you have a claim go sideways, contractor is the worst contractor on the earth and they're the biggest jerk ever. And they get the um, homeowner all riled up, you know, and you end up like, it's, it turns into a, you know, the guy starts yelling and screaming at you and calling you names and you, 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 you stop the inspection, which you should do if that happens. Very first thing you're going to do is you're going to get on the phone and call that agent. And hopefully it was somebody that you, even if it's not, but it, but it, hopefully it is somebody that you went in early in the storm and went and talked to and introduced yourself to. Hey, listen, this is Matt. Cause I'll tell you the homeowners, the first thing that they're going to do is when you leave and that contractor leaves, they're going to pick the phone. And they're going to call their agent and chew their ear off. You might be getting a call from so-and-so just want to call and let you know, this is what happened. This is how the, the appointment went down. The contractor um, was just dis disagreed with what, with our assessment of what's going on on the roof. He started to use foul language. So I stopped the, the inspection appointment. And I was just calling to let you know, even if it's Saturday morning and there's nobody in the agent's office, I'm leaving that message, right? You don't want to have the agent get blindsided because the, the agent usually we say, you know, we previously said tie goes to the insured. Well, Another rule is, is that whoever gets in touch with the agent first wins. I mean, I don't know what you win, but you're, it's, it, it helps the agent out. They're going to, if, if they get your side of the story first in a calm, clear, respectful, gracious manner over, if they get that call first versus getting the homeowner screaming and yelling, demanding blood and heads and everything else, because they feel like they've been, you know, whatever, this helps the agent because they'd be like, okay, yes, sir. And can they, it may be, you know, I've, I've called in, this had this happen. I called the agent and talked to somebody in the office. I'm like, hey, listen, you know, I just, I just left uh, so-and-so's house, Mr. Whatever his name is. And uh, he was kind of disappointed with what we came up with. And so I, I anticipate he's going to be calling. Oh yeah, no, no, we'll, we'll be ready for him. That guy, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's very vocal about the things. You know, don't worry. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you for calling. Thank you for calling. They'll always say that because they, they do really appreciate that. But that's the IA side. And I'm curious to hear more about the sort of the carrier side because you were an agency liaison for Yeah, for a while. Yeah. So my last deployment with this carrier I was working for, I was working Hurricane uh, Ida. That's what it was. And so they the all blur together, don't they? Yeah, they all go together. So the carrier uh, before or after Hurricane Ida hit Louisiana, um, the carrier had agents and any agent that had more than 600 claims through their office, they embedded a staff adjuster or an adjuster there at their facility. And typically those are staffed uh, by staff adjusters because I guess, I don't know, maybe it looks better. Maybe they feel like staff adjusters have a vested interest in the company. But anyway, uh, I was at this agent's office and he had over 600 claims um, through his office. And I can tell you firsthand, those agents uh, offices and staffers there in the agent's office love when they have an adjuster stop by because they're, they're selling insurance. They're selling policies. Whenever they have a policyholder come in to pay their premiums, they have a, a build a personal relationship with that person and they're almost like friends. And so they don't know necessarily the claim side of things. And so what they do is 
all they hear is the insured side. Like this adjuster denied my roof. They wouldn't pay for anything. Well, they didn't know that there wasn't any damage. Um, and then you have to sometimes explain the policy to the agent. Like, well, the policy pays for accidental direct physical loss or actual damage to the roof. There wasn't anything out there. There wasn't actual physical damage to the roof. It was just an old roof. All the granules were coming off. There was no damage to the um, collaterals on the property, at gutters, nothing. And so once you get them on your side, then that agent can kind of run interference for you and like, Herb, now calm down, calm down. Andy was out there. Herb. <laughs> He's seen this. And um, and they, they'll kind of help you because they have a personal relationship with this customer. And so it's almost like, well, if the agent says there wasn't any damage, then I believe it, but I don't trust this adjuster. And so the other thing, too, is the agents sometimes are getting lit up by customers and they're they don't know what's going on. All they know is a customer's calling, threatening to leave, uh, cancel their insurance. And if they leave the insurance company, the insurance company leaves, loses a policyholder, but them leaving that agent directly affects their income for making money for their families. And so they, they want to keep their uh, policyholders as on the books as long as possible. And the other thing it does too is if they get an opportunity to follow up with the policyholder, maybe they realize, hey, you don't have the backup sewer and drain endorsement. Let's talk about that. You need to get that added to your policy for the next claim. And so it gives them an opportunity to make sure they're staying on top of the insurance or the insured's needs. But they feel like they're a part of this company that they're selling insurance for because in the past, agents that I've talked to, before this agency liaison program, they felt like they sell insurance for the, the company. The company leaves them out of anything else um, as far as claims handling. And agents are experts at selling the insurance policy, but they're not experts in uh, what the policy pays for. And that's what the, their claims adjuster comes in. And if you have an upset policyholder, you can kind of help the agent understand why something's not covered or what the situation is. And then the agent in turn can help you with the policyholder um, if they're getting going sideways with you or not, because honestly, they don't trust you necessarily as, a, as a, an adjuster, but they do trust that agent. Now, obviously, there's some people you can't make happy regardless, and the agent's offices understand that because I there were several people that I tried to help. Um and most of them I was able to help, but they're like, oh, that's just so-and-so. They're cranky, and nothing ever came of it. That's just that person. But uh, keeping the agents in the loop makes the agents happy, makes the policyholder uh, experience a little bit better, too. And um, if you ever get an opportunity to work as an agency liaison or an agent advocate, I would do it just because you're going to get the experience of dealing with upset people, and getting to understand how the agent's office works. One of the things that I didn't realize is every agent's different, but the agent office I worked for um, had these high hurricane deductibles. And these the first thing that you're going to hear whenever you tell somebody, when you're going over coverages and you're explaining, oh, by the way, you have a $32,000 hurricane deductible because it's 5%, they freak out, get mad, and threaten to call their agent. After working in that agent's office for four months, this agent every year 
calls and notifies and reminds the customer of their hurricane deductible. So um, they they said, don't worry about it, Andy. This person knew that they had deductible that high. They may have forgot it in the last year, but every year we call all of our customers and we let them know about their deductible and we go over their insurance needs with them and what they have in force. And so they know full well what they have on the books. So it's a super important job. I think uh, especially lo- the larger carriers that do use agents, they're putting a huge focus on the agent. And so um, if you ever get a deployment with State Farm, Allstate, some of the bigger ones, they're w- going to want you to keep the agent in the loop on things, especially when things um, are going to go sideways. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, and, and to, to add to this kind of d- discussion, when we talk about you know, calling the if if you do have a claim that goes sideways, um, immediately calling the agent. The next phone call that you need to make after that is to your IA team manager. Do not call the carrier manager ever. I can't think of a reason why you'd ever want to call anybody at the carrier. Your manager is your advocate, right? They're your leader or whatever. Everything that you do goes through them. The chain of command is you to your IA firm team manager. You don't skip your manager to go to somebody else, right? Unless you've been working for him for 10 years and you know the carrier QA guy and you can just reach out straight to him, which I did that. But that's generally speaking, call your manager and let them know what's going on, right? Hey, listen, I just got off the phone with the agent's office and I wanted to call you and let you know um, because it'll loop around and it'll end up getting back to your agent. Uh, or to your your manager that so and so you know went sideways. Everybody was saying bad words, and I didn't like it, so I stopped the inspection and uh, didn't think that we were going anywhere with it. And just letting you know, here's the claim number, here's the person's name, here's the contractor's name, or whatever it is, right? And then the third thing that you do is you're going to crack open Xactimate and you're going to document what happened in your inspection note, right? You're going to say. Expected loss with first and last name insured, first and last name contractor, and whoever else was there. Contractor's phone number and company name, if you if you have it, which you should. Um, this is this is these are the things that happened. Was inspecting the loss, uh, did not find any any damage. You know, uh, what am I the word I'm looking for? No damage consistent with uh, hail impacts or wind or storm damage of any kind. Um, contractor disagreed. Um, meeting became contentious. I ended the meeting period. Right. And then you can either keep going in that note. You can start a new note either way. It doesn't matter. But what you're going to say next is, um, contacted agent first and last name or agent staff, agency staff, first and last name at this number, area code, et cetera, and explain situation, um, on the claim. And then you're going to make another note and say, say that you contacted your manager for direction on what to do next. And your manager told you to do A, B, and C, right? Manager said, um, we'll take it back and give it to somebody else or we'll, you know, try to get, do a reinspection without the contractor, whatever it is, right? Whatever they tell you to do, that's what the next thing is to do, right? So, so in other words, you're letting everybody in the who is in the could be in the loop, who might get their ear completely chewed off on the phone. Um, you're letting them know ahead of time that they could hold the phone back from their face a little bit, so that they, you know, and then you are documenting this in the file immediately. Like, if if this is and this is what I would do. So, if appointment goes sideways. 
sorry, I'm gonna have to end this right now. We'll be in touch, whatever. Jump in, the, just don't, you're not, don't say anything, especially if somebody's being really, really like loud with you. Jump in your vehicle, and then I would drive to the nearest taco place, right? And just to soothe myself with tacos. And I would make, start making this. I would actually probably just go right around the corner and call the agent first because they might be right running inside to call the agent. So you want to get in touch with the agent first. And then call your manager and then drive to the taco place and fill out your activity diary or, or get an exact analysis and in the notes and add, add a, a note that explains what happened. And again, not throwing anybody under the bus and you're not sharing your opinions, right? This is, this is something that's discoverable in court. Opinions don't count in court. Only facts, statements of facts, right? So you're going to state, this is what I found. This person disagreed. Um, this person, uh, was not upset, became irate. That's not an opinion. It's a, you can, you can look at objectively at somebody and say, well, that person is definitely irate. Ended the appointment, dot, 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 right. And so on and so forth. And now you're covered. You've been told what to do next, whether you're going to close your claim and you know, you, you, you already scoped the whole thing. Maybe is close the claim and let's whatever, whatever they tell you to do, but it's, it's the whole thing's buttoned up. It's covered up. It's not covered up, but it's, it's taken care of in a way that it's anybody else that may need to deal with that. Maybe an agency liaison, you know, or an agent advocate or somebody who's going to have to step in or, you know, your team manager gets with the carrier manager and the carrier manager calls or who knows what, whatever, they'll tell you what they want you to do. Um, but it's important to, you know, even just for a few minutes, touch base with the agents, the very beginning of the storm, you know, you can take a few minutes, you, you They'll their the the agent's name and address, or at least their name, will be on the first notice of loss usually, and you can then you can just like do a search and find their office. Or if you're driving down the street, oh, there's Scott Smith's agency office. You know, turn around. You know, maybe you're gonna cut ten minutes off your taco time if you're on your way to lunch. Jump in there, say hi, hand out some cards, go grab your tacos, and away you go. That's all it takes. You don't have to. It's not a big deal. It's not a you don't have to have a speech prepared or anything. Just going, hi, I'm Matt with, you know, such and such company. Um, I am an independent adjuster contracted with the company, but I want you, you know, I want you to know that we're, you know, I've worked a lot for 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 this company. I just actually got off two events, you know, in Minneapolis, whatever you want to say, right? Um, and please contact me if something comes up. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's perfect because just act like your file note's going to be uh, in the court of law and it's going to be on a screen for everybody to see. Yeah, I'm the world's worst. I'm the I'm the short story guy. I want to put it was a cold afternoon with a slight breeze coming from the southwest. <laughs> that's the guy I am, and I want to explain exactly what happened. But honestly, you're not writing that note for you because you know what happened. You're writing that note for your manager or whoever else gets in behind there, and they're not going to ha- want to read a short story. They want just the facts. So just put the basic facts in there, exactly what happens, not your opinions, not your feelings. Don't get me wrong. You want to put that in there because I do. But when you step back and think, okay, I'm just going to put the exactly what happened, what the issues were, and then that way your when your manager gets in there, he or she can look at it and boom, 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 boom. Okay, this is the issues. Got the insured on the phone. And then they can make their decision as to how they want to proceed. But just the facts, for sure. Just the facts. And the facts that are here is that we have come to the end of this podcast. And um want to thank Andy for being in the town welcome. for this week and uh, helping us out with some construction stuff on the house. 
And you know, that's all we got for you. Um, definitely check us out over at Adjuster TV Plus if you're not already watching us on Adjuster TV Plus. That's kind of the the home of it, like the Adjuster TV stuff. That's more advanced Adjuster trainings. Um, so check it out. But can I say it? Yeah. Thanks for joining, and have a great storm. Nice. <laughs> you're watching Adjuster TV.